Welcome Aww. to Dragon Talk, the official Dungeons of Dragons podcast. I'm Greg Tito, and I'm joined by... Shelly Mazanoble. Not to be confused with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle named Shelly Mazanoble. Right. Which yes. happens all the time. It's the girl one. Shell, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, I would buy that. I totally would. I'll get you one. Oh, nice. Uh, we are joined uh, by two Adams. Hello, Adams. Yeah. Hi. I'm Adam Johns. I'm Adam Davis. And you guys are from the Wheelhouse Workshop. Yeah, that's us. That's you guys. And we'll get to, give me like the like two sentence version of Wheelhouse Workshop. Sure. So Wheelhouse Workshop uses Dungeons and Dragons and therapeutic social skills groups with teenagers. Love oh it. God. All right. Teenage. Mutant? <laughs> Not yet. Ninja? Not yet, but they, and what they touched the to use. Expand in that way. There was a little <laughs> pre-conversation, sorry, about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Heroes in a half shell. Yeah. Turtle, Turtle power. power. <laughs> <laughs> you can't leave that hanging. You really can't that leave that hanging. Was was that was a setup. Yeah, you needed to. I'm glad we did that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we will get to you guys and do a whole full interview because there's a lot of there I want to unpack about all that you just said, even though it was very short, there's a lot in there that we uh, uh, want to delve into because it's super fascinating. But before we do that, we got to do some stupid announcements. I mean, amazing announcements. Uh, and then do a segment, Let's which we'll it. cut to that, and then we'll get right to that, right? Uh, so Force Grey, Lost City of Omu is going to be uh, premiering tonight, episode three at 5 p.m. Pacific time. And by tonight, I mean whatever date it is when you listen to this on the podcast, which is any time in the future. Yeah. Uh, but every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time, uh, we'll be doing new episodes of Forced Grey, and that stars uh, Joe Manganiello, Deborah Ann Wall, Dylan Sprouse, Utkarsh Ambudkar, and Brian Pesain as Forced Grey uh, in a new season that's all Dungeon Mastered by Matt Mercer. It's pretty amazing. We had the last two episodes go live uh, on July 31st, and uh, it was a big hit uh, with all of the kids listening to it on their Snapchats. That's how it works, right? Sure. Yeah, right? You can listen to things on Snapchat. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. yeah, right? And people really liked it. Yeah. Did you watch any of it? You were on vacation. I was on vacation. Yeah, you can't watch things when you're on vacation. It's no. part of the rules. No. Yeah. Unless it's the real housewives. Did you play any games when you were on vacation? I played a lot of cards with my mom. Nice. We play Rummy. Oh, like Rummy 5000? Rummy. So yes, she has some version we play. And I owe her $246. But <laughs> oops. <laughs> Wait, you can pay for money? I didn't know that. Well,. Yeah. Oh. She doesn't always get paid, though. No, that makes sense. Um, also, speaking of money, uh, you guys can subscribe <laughs> to Twitch, uh, uh, the D&D Twitch channel, and you have lots of faces and, and emotes. Uh, I've already seen uh, my face with an ampersand with Chris Perkins' face, and it's kind of disturbing slash amazing at the same time. It's amazing. Uh, okay, it's just amazing, amazing. Yeah, yeah amazing slash amazing. Yeah. Um, you can go get those uh, by clicking the subscribe button, uh, and uh, there's also badges uh, that you get, not badger but badges uh, that you can put on there. And uh, perhaps the best thing right now is that uh, you don't have to watch any ads when you watch anything on the D&D Twitch channel. We've got lots of programming coming out over the uh, next few months. We've been previewing Tomb of Annihilation storylines uh, here uh, and uh, all the stuff that uh, we will, uh, all, everything that will be coming in uh, will be just helping making everything better. Uh, so better equipment, uh, more shows, uh, getting more people in uh, uh, into the D&D Twitch channel. And we love your support and we will uh, uh, continue to love and give big embraces to all of you, including even more stuff uh, from more uh, tier subscriptions uh, coming out in the future. There's a lot of things that uh, are on the horizon. But right now we're just out there with emotes and the Badgers. Not the Badgers. Not the Badgers. But Thank maybe they're coming. Maybe we'll just rename Badges to Tortles and then we'll, you'll go, hey, you got a brand new turtle. There you go. You got the Turtle Badge. It's coming at you. Uh, 
Again, Tomb of Annihilation is coming out September 19th. Why? But it'll be in-game stores on September 8th. Uh, go check that out. All the fun uh, lore segments we've been doing, as well as um, the uh, adventures that have been going on a weekly basis here on the Twitch channel. I've all been kind of previewing it, and, and uh, I'm getting really excited about uh, going into Cholt myself. we got to continue our game, uh, right, Shelley? Yes. Yeah, our tabaxi uh, brother and sister sibling match. Uh, what, what's your name again? Drunky, drunky Two Shoes. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, is it like Drunky Two Shoes? I'm like, oh, yeah, it is yes, Drunky it Two Shoes. Yes, it is. <laughs> and mine is Daryl Two Shoes. Yeah. Yeah. And my, and Clearly, I was there. We have another brother, Daryl, as well. But right, the other brother. We'll Darryl. find him eventually. Hopefully. Maybe yeah. he's here in Schultz. Bart, if you're listening, who's dungeon mastering our, our little uh, uh, work thing, we've got to find the other we brother, Daryl. brother. We need we another brother. A third brother. And he better not be like a zombie, Daryl. All right? Don't make that happen. Um, Neverwinter is... Uh, in Tomb of Annihilation right now. You can go uh, download it on PC at playneverwinter.com and jump into the jungles of Chult and explore all through it. It's very beautiful. Um, Chris Perkins is a voice on it. He actually plays uh, Volo Gedarnt. Gedarnt? Gedarnt. Get out. Get out. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, he can send you off on missions uh, to uh, slay some of the monsters in the region. Super cool stuff. Uh, I suggest you check it out. There's big Tyrannosaurus Rexes that might eat you there. Just saying. It's a thing. It could happen. Uh, also, WizKids Icons of the Realms uh, Tomb of Annihilation minis are also in stores right now. And there's tons of uh, monsters in those minis that you can use directly in your Tomb of Annihilation game. I suggest you look for those. I showed them off on D&D News last week, I believe. Uh, or maybe during uh, uh, the Girls' Club's Glory. I don't know, one of the things. Uh, Pelham is awesome, and he will be in the chat and give you those right now so you can see them as they're happening. It's good stuff. And if you're uh, just listening to this and not watching this live on Twitch, um, uh, we will put some of those links in the uh, description so you guys can check those out there too. All right. Um, I believe that is our announcements for now, and we will jump right into our fun segment that's coming up. Do you know what segment it is? Hello and welcome to Sage Advice, uh, a segment of the Dragon Talk podcast in which we delve in deep to uh, parts of the Dungeons and Dragons rules and uh, talk about kind of the intent and the design behind them as well as tips that you can use. And I'm here with uh, Jeremy Crawford. Hello, everyone. How you doing? I'm doing great. You excited to jump into DM uh, etiquette is what we call this this, this topic <laughs> right. of how to use uh, uh, rules that are in the game uh, to kind of deal with uh, problems that kind of arise for dungeon masters like problem players or, or or situations that are hard to defuse. Yeah, yeah, or and sometimes people will talk about this area of the game as table rules. So re- rather than being the the rules for the system, mm-hmm. it's really how do you run your game table? Oh yeah, uh, and uh, also how do you use the rules? at the game table, both as a dungeon master and as a player. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, when you and I were talking about this, and I was thinking, well, is there really enough for us to talk about? And then I was starting to jot down notes. I was like, oh, wait, there's plenty to talk about. Yeah, right. Because there are a lot of things that dungeon masters do to keep a a table running that often we as DMs aren't even aware that we're doing it or that we have different methods of keeping the game moving, keeping our players happy, making sure looking up rules doesn't cause everything to grind to a halt. Mm -hmm. All of these things sort of flow into the art of, of the dungeon master. So the thing I wanted to lead with is first off, because I am a big proponent of DMs in particular doing as little work as possible. At the uh, table itself. Yes, and, and even away from the table. I often, oh. re- I often recommend that DMs so that they avoid burnout 
Um, so here, I'll right away stop. So this isn't even a table rule. This is just a DM etiquette rule for DM. Make sure you don't burn out as a DM. Yeah. This is a hobby for those of us who love playing and DMing D&D. Uh, try, if you can, when you're preparing for a session, try to limit your preparation time to no more than half the length of the session you're expecting to run. So let's say you're planning on running a four-hour session. Try to spend no more than two hours preparing for it. Now, many of us, because we love building worlds and creating maps and coming up with pantheons of gods, we'll spend way more time than that. Yeah. But although how I kind of rationalize as a DM when I'm starting to spend a lot of time in preparation how I rationalize spending all that time is I separate out my world-building time from my session preparation time. Yeah, because they're two different parts of not even the brain, but just of like what you need to get in, in, in your brain. So like world-building, you could spend hours and hours and hours yes. and hours. And that's yep. always good because mm -hmm. the more you think you know about that world, the better in general. Right. You don't want to spend too much a time of stuff where people aren't necessarily going to explain, but at least it goes in the, in the brain matter and you can access it later. And if you're running, if you're running published adventures... Rather than spending your time world building, you could spend that time reading the adventure you're going to run. You could spend that time reading up about the world you're running your adventure in. So yeah. if, if you're running, uh, you know, say, uh, Storm King's Thunder or soon Tomb of Annihilation, you could be reading up on uh, the Sword Coast or on Chult. Um, and if you're creating your own world, again, you're, you're creating all of these details and whatnot. That to me is separate from the prep you do for a particular session. Like, okay, what's going to happen uh, in tomorrow's D&D session? Yeah. And, and getting ready for that. And that's the kind of prep where I'm like, try to keep it so that you're not spending too much time on that. Partly because you can never predict everything that's going to happen. And I find DMs will often end up preparing way more than they need to, which is not a terrible thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but again, with the goal of making sure this still feels like it's a fun hobby for you, you don't want to burn out, just so it keeps being a delight for yeah. you. Yeah, because the last thing you want to do is prep like 10 different scenarios. Be like, well, I'm sure my players will pick one of these 10 scenarios, and you spend th four hours building those 10 scenarios, then of course they do the 11th scenario that you didn't anticipate, and then you're like, well, what did I do all that for? Right. <laughs> and that's, that's also why I'm also, so one of my other uh, table rules uh, that I would give to DMs, uh, and really this is advice, this is not a rule, yeah. uh, is try to let none of your preparation go to waste. Mm -hmm. And so let's say the players run off and do something that you never expected. Uh, and you, you spend all your prep time pre prep preparing for them going to the Temple of Darkness and they decided to dash off to the Temple of Light and you have nothing prepared for it. First off, just be comfortable winging it because the thing that DMs often forget is the players have no idea what you prepared. Yeah. And they have no idea what's behind your DM screen. It's not like they're over your shoulder being yeah. like, oh, when are you going to get this into the campaign? And, and, and so in, a, in essence, you're never doing it wrong if you put something in front of them that you didn't prepare because they don't know you didn't prepare it. Yeah. What matters is just simply that whatever you put in front of them, it's fun, it's engaging them. Uh, and it's giving them a D&D &D experience that they're going to remember uh, or at least just, you know, have a ball with that afternoon or that evening when you're playing. Is there a corollary to that in which you uh, don't telegraph that you just are making this up? Like don't telegraph that you're winging it? Oh, I always as a DM basically try to have a poker face and – I, I will present something I painstakingly prepared, sometimes for weeks in advance. 
I will present it the same way I present something I made up on the spot. I try to just, as I'm delivering the story, I'm a storyteller. What matters is delivering that story. It doesn't matter if I made up element B two seconds ago and I've been planning this other element for six months. Right, right. My goal is just weave it all together because, again, there's no need for you as a DM to be nervous. They don't know what's in your notes. I like Uh, that you you mentioned it's a poker-faced thing too mm -hmm. because, you know, in poker there's the – if you're bluffing, you sometimes show that you bluffed just to be like, hey – I was bluffing, so you knew that I was bluffing. And then sometimes you don't show, mm-hmm. even if you have this stuff, for that reason to keep that mystery. And I do that as a DM sometimes, too, where I'm like, you know, after a session, I'll be like, ah, I'd totally just wing that. And they're like, what? Oh, my gosh, that's crazy. And then other times I'll be like, yeah, no, I've been uh, prepping that for weeks, that, uh, <laughs> that thing that I just made up out of my butt. And, you know, and so, like, you keep them guessing a little bit. And a funny anecdote with this is currently Chris Perkins is playing in my campaign, but in uh, fourth edition, I used to play in his. And... And it's funny, actually, he and I sit, we're in the same like relationship to each other at the table as mm. we were back then, because when I'm DMing, he always sits to my, immediately to my right, so he can kind of see over my DM screen. Yeah. And in our fourth edition game, I was often sitting also right next to him and could see over his DM screen. And Chris often does this, where his poker face is, he'll look down at his paper like when something happens, like, you know, someone says, oh, I meet this NPC, and he'll look at a paper as if he's looking at the NPC's name, and I'll look over, and it's like, there's nothing on that piece of paper. It's <laughs> <laughs> a completely blank sheet yep. of paper. Yep. Oh, he's nice. making it up on the spot, yeah. which is, a, that's a part of the magic of D&D. Is yeah. it, again, all your players care about is that it feels like a cohesive story, a sequence of events and locations. They don't know where it came from. Now, I mentioned before, I like also to make sure preparation doesn't go to waste. So if you spend a bunch of time preparing something, as long as you don't get too wedded to the particular way in which you prepared it. Like I mentioned before, they they decided to march off to the Temple of Light, and you prepared the Temple of Darkness. Well, in some cases, you can take the preparation you did for something else and just rapidly reskin it for another situation. Yeah. Like, uh, okay, I, Temple of Darkness was filled with bad guys, and they were going to fight them, and it was going to be a traditional dungeon slog. Oh, God, they're, instead they're going to this other temple, and I don't even know what's really there. How about it's filled with the same bad guys? <laughs> and so then you could just take your prep that you did for something else and dump it some, in, in another location. Usually, though, what I do is I'll take something I prepared that we didn't end up using it, and I'll end up using it many sessions later. Yeah. Uh, and, and we'll often, you know, reskin it. Uh, or another thing I love is especially if you're designing wilderness situations mm. because they're not, you know, you're not walking down fixed corridors and whatnot. And you might have thought, okay, if they go down this particular road, they're going to come across this strange forest shrine where they're going to hear the whispers of an old god. Oh, darn, they never went down that road. But again, they don't know what road that, sh- that shrine is on. So you, in play, you can just take it and move it someplace else. Um, and I would even recommend to DMs, be this free-flowing even when you're running published adventures and using an established world like the Forgotten Realms. What I often like to remind DMs is the moment you start using a published adventure and have your players step into a world like the Forgotten Realms or Greyhawk or Dragonlance or Eberron or any other D&D setting, yeah. at that moment it becomes your world and the published adventure you're running is your adventure. And it's going to be unlike, even if you run it exactly by the book, because of the choices your players are going to make, it's going to be unlike anyone else's version of it. And so I really encourage DMs, grasp onto that freedom. Grasp onto the fact 
that it's going to be a unique experience for you. And don't fret if you realize after the fact, like you reread through the adventure and it's like, oh, I described this this fruit stall being on the left side of the street in Waterdeep when, in fact, the adventurer said it was on the right side. Everything who, is ruined. Yeah, who, There's, who, I can't suspend my disbelief <laughs> anymore. Yeah, who cares? Because, again, it's now your version of Waterdeep. Exactly. Uh, and you decide now in this instance of it. Uh, it's a unique instance of Waterdeep. It's all yours. You decide how things work there. This is also a great uh, thing to keep in mind when you have players who maybe have played in one of these worlds for many years, sometimes mm. for decades. Mm. You can often surprise them uh, because, again, the the timeline they're in basically is different from yeah. any anyone else's. Now, it gets a little trickier when you're running, say, like an Adventurer's League, our official organized play. Then because you're trying to create this sense of everyone playing in the same instance of the world, yeah. uh, then people want to... Keep, keep a little closer to the text. But here's the thing. You can still, there's a lot you can still play fast and loose with. At, at this most recent Gen Con, there was uh, an Adventures League adventure I was running. It's a lot of fun. It has a dinosaur race in it and in an arena fight. Nice. And, and I ran that adventure multiple times. Every time I ran it, I changed something in the adventure. Uh, the team that they were racing against in the dinosaur race, I described them differently every time I ran it, mostly to amuse myself. Uh, <laughs> and my favorite one was the final one where, for whatever reason, I decided one of the racers had a jack-o'-lantern helmet on his head, and the players really laughed about that, about this dinosaur rider with this jack-o'-lantern helmet. I don't know why the heck I did it, but I just decided on the spot this guy has a jack-o'-lantern helmet on. Yeah. Uh, but none of the other versions of the adventure I ran had the jack-o'-lantern helmet. Uh, I even sometimes will change the uh, genders of the characters. The adventure, you, you go talk to this NPC named Pockmark Poe, and it said he's with two women. Well, I decided, and two young women, I decided, no, one of them is a middle-aged woman and the other one is a young man. Mm -hmm. And suddenly turn those two characters uh, into sort of interesting NPCs for the people to meet. Neat. Um, so again, make it your own. Don't let your preparation go to waste. So some other things for a DM uh, to do. One thing I love to tell my players, uh, especially at conventions, to try to keep the game moving when it comes around to their turn in combat mm. is if players are going to cast a spell in particular, make sure before your turn comes up to already have your player's handbook open to the spell you're going to cast. Yeah, uh, or the spell card. Or the or spell card, or if you're using D&D Beyond, have, that, you know, have your, your screen you know, with that, with the spell ready to go. Yeah. Because uh, often what will happen is someone will say, all right, I cast Gust of Wind. And then we're like, You're like what does it do? And so what does Gust of Wind do? Yeah. Um, and What's then the saving throw I yeah, have to and make? And then, you know, okay, now let's flip through it. Now they read it. Then they discover it doesn't actually do what they thought it did. Yeah. And that's almost like, okay, if you're playing a spellcaster, please read the spell before you cast it <laughs> and have it open because often people will have questions. Right. You know? And even if you don't have that stuff available to you, one thing I do on my character sheet is take very brief notes on the spell. So you put like 60 feet at the range. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's uh, a deck save, just put decks and just put like little notes like that. So like the major components of, you know, it's kind of like what the top of the spell description does. But if you can make really tiny notes on your, on your sheet, most of those questions you know, in play are going to be fine. And you, once you remember them, you remember them and it's, it's easy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this can also, this principle also holds for complex class features. Mm. So, you know, there are some class features that can be as complex as a spell, you know, some of the channel divinity options that the cleric and the paladin have. 
Again, I'd like my players to have it open. Um, sometimes, I mean, I appreciate it. Sometimes they imagine I have the, all the book in my head. And, and, I, and I've seen players do this with other DMs as well. Well, surely my DM knows how all this he stuff knows works. All it is, right. But then, as you mentioned on this segment many times before, you have the current version of the rules in your head. You have every playtest version of the rules <laughs> right. in your head, including other editions and yes. other editions playtest rules in your head. So it's very hard to be like, what's the, what's the printed thing that yeah. I need to reference right now? And, and what I've noticed is that doesn't happen only to those of us who work on the game. I've actually seen a lot of people who've played the game edition after edition after edition they'll often be haunted by how things used to work and not realize it. You yeah. know, they'll, they'll think, oh, surely this is what this spell does or surely this is how this works. And it turns out, well, it hasn't actually worked that way in D&D in about 10 years. Shout but out, I know why you think that. Shout out to anybody in 5th edition who's called for a spot check or yes. a listen check yes. for that reason. Or right? occasionally someone will talk about uh, flanking, but not the optional rule in the Dungeon Master's Guide. They actually mean flanking, how it worked in 3rd and 4th edition. Exactly, yeah. So it's good to have the most recent stuff at your fingertips, yes. at least uh, so that you can make combat go faster. Now, that said, if you don't have it open and for for whatever reason the group is having trouble finding the rule that they're using, one bit of uh, another good table rule is if it's starting to take too long, the key is for the DM to keep things moving yeah. and to be okay with making a rules call and and just being comfortable with it and moving right along. Now, sometimes people will say, okay, then the DM should write down how he or she made that ruling and it must be the same way forevermore. Uh, I, I think that's less important. What's important is that just things kept moving and people had a good time. Because yeah. you, you might sometimes realize when you go back to the books or think about it some more like, ooh, oops. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's not a ruling I want to repeat. <laughs> could be some, yeah, that could have been done differently. Like, right. yeah, you start to, to edit yourself. Yeah, and and what's important again is was the story great? Did people laugh? Were they scared if it's supposed to be a scary adventure? Was it dramatic if it's supposed to be a dramatic adventure? Mm -hmm. The end of the day in D and D, there's no special prize for well, I got every rule right. Uh, now that can be satisfying, sure. We should uh, give that prize out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Like it's all yeah. about whether or not the experience itself was fun, and any, any of the things we're talking about are ways that the experience can drag down. Yeah. Now. Uh, Something else, uh, and this is going to be a, a, a one some people say this is a silly table rule to bring up, but I always like to make sure, even in convention games that go over an hour in length, always have a break. Mm -hmm. uh, and I say that, Abe, because people have to go to the bathroom. People need to get drinks and food. But also people like to chat about things other than the game. Mm -hmm. I also, what part of my motive also of having breaks is I find that the more often I give breaks in a game, the less likely people are to spend time on their phones during the game because often during those breaks, that's when they catch up on their texts. That's when they look at their email. That's what they see what's going on on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, so I have found that actually the more I, I have some kind of regular breaks, the more there's that the, – the less you experience people being distracted during the play. Right. Uh, to just, okay, let's step away from the table for a second. Let's refresh our drinks. Yeah, and then and then we'll keep going. I didn't think about that before. That's a very 2017 tip. Yeah, for for Dungeons and Dragons play, but and, yeah, and and it's something again. I'm very I'm very conscious about, and I do it even in convention play. 
unless I'm running a kind of a shorter adventure, but especially if I'm you know running a three or four hour adventure, I will say, all right, I, I will usually have several breaks. Right, and let uh, people know in. they're like, okay, there's gonna be a break come up in 15 minutes, and yeah. that is enough sometimes for people not to be checking their phone. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Yeah, uh, so something else uh, that uh, is a really good table rule is outside of combat. Uh, where in combat, people have turns in a particular order. So you never have to worry about somebody being overlooked. But, but when it's not combat, when people are not acting in turn order, I think it's important for DMs to just remember that everyone is there to play and everyone's going to want a moment to say what their character is going to do. And also they're going to want to have a chance to, to step into the spotlight. Yeah. So one thing I do uh, very consciously when I'm running non-combat scenes is make sure I do a kind of fairly regular sweep around the table to, to ask some form of the very basic question in D&D, and that is, what do you do? And often players will just tell me, and I don't have to do this. So, you know, it's not artificial. You don't have to officially go around and, you know, what do you do, Greg? What do you... It it happens very organically, but sometimes you'll notice, okay, these three players have been talking a lot and doing a lot. These other other two or three, they've been kind of quiet, and and I don't know what their characters are doing. And so I often will... uh, will tell actually people who are saying, all right, you know, we're running over there and then we're going to ask them this. And okay, now we're talking to this NPC. Mm-hmm. I'll often p- put them on pause and then go over to the other players and see, okay, so what are you guys doing? Um, I also, and this is also a little tip I think is great for DMs, is when you're doing that outside of combat, when characters are doing different things, sometimes in different places, because parties often do split up outside of combat, especially if you're in a city um, or you know, in kind of non-dungeon environment. Yeah, I often love to use that kind of focus shifting, right? Where, where I switch from one player to another to create mini cliffhangers. Right. So often, you know, I'll have I'll have somebody say, "All right, I'm going to go over and investigate that bookshelf," and I, as a DM, know, okay, the cursed tome is in that bookshelf, <laughs> and so I'll say, "All right, you go up and you see this dark tome," and they're like, "All right, I reach up for it." I'm like, "All right." Mary, what are you doing? And so I will create these moments of tension where suddenly they're going to have to wait to find out what happens next. And so I try to do that throughout a session. And again, one of the easiest ways as a DM you can do that is with that focus shifting, shift to another character. And that accomplishes so many things at once because it ramps up tension. It makes people wonder what that is. Like, Mm -hmm. Why is there a dark tome and why did he shift away from there? And then it also does what you're talking about, which is make sure that the people who don't feel like they have a spotlight have the spotlight for even a little bit. But I have a follow-up question, though. Uh, So what do you do when you ask someone, what do you do? And they're like, oh, I'm nothing. I'm, I'm not doing anything. That's fine. Uh, now, sometimes I might have a leading question for them. Mm. Like if I know there's something that in this scene that their character would normally be engaged about, I might remind them of that fact. Um, I also will sometimes fill in those silences with a little bit of extra description. Uh, like, oh, because I have a character who's just sort of chilling you know, just taking things in. Well, then I will sometimes then throw in, well, while you stand there. Uh, <laughs> These are the things that happen. Yeah, you notice X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And then that's a chance for me to work in some exposition without an exposition dump truck kind of backing in and beep, then dumping. Beep, you know? beep. And yeah. so, because that's also, when you break things up like this, it's also a technique for sprinkling 
environment descriptions, exposition, NPC descriptions in uh, in nice little bite-sized chunks. Yeah, um, yeah, and that also gets to make sure it. it, it by doing the description thing or like, you know, sensory things such as like smell or touch, like mm-hmm. it, it just, it makes the world feel a little bit more richer if you do things like that. Even if it isn't necessarily exposition or important details, the fact that you're just giving them details makes it feel like, oh, I can smell the meat cooking and, and yes. you know, oh, and, and I hear the music playing from the tavern across the way, you know, like things that make it feel like it's a, a breathing world. And that's, that's often some of my favorite stuff to describe is... I often, when I'm DMing, imagining myself standing where the characters are, and mm-hmm. then I just do this kind of panorama in my head. And yeah. what are they smelling? What are they hearing? It's like a little movie montage. Exactly. Exactly. Now, specifically about rules in the DM. Mm-hmm. Some DMs like to have house rules, and then also DMs will sometimes be concerned about using particular rules in a session. So I have two tips here. Okay. If you're going to use a rule you don't normally use, like let's say you know they're going to dive down into the lost city that is that sunk beneath some lake, and oh boy, there's going to be a lot of aquatic combat potentially. I always try to think ahead in any in any adventure I'm running, and I think what are the unusual rules I might be using in this session, and I make sure to reread those rules before the session, yeah. so that I don't have that awkward moment at the table where like I don't under- remember how aquatic combat works. <laughs> Hold, please. you designed the game, Jeremy. You <laughs> right. Know. Well, we're pretending I, I'm just a regular <laughs> DM when I say this. No, but uh, you're right. And then also, I mean, it's the same tip as for the players: is like have that open at, at your table when you're about to start that session, or you know, flagged or up on your phone if you're using D&D Beyond, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, again, like I said before, if you don't read up on it beforehand and you don't want to take the time to look it up during your session, just wing it, make something up, and uh, be willing to course correct uh, after the session. Um, Best not to do course correction during the session where suddenly like midway through you're like, oh, no, let's completely change how we're running this. And then, you know, your session turns into a, a... a forum on the rules. And yeah. again, that's usually not why people gathered around to play. And then it feels like you're playing Calvin Ball. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, so what was the other? House rules. Yes. Uh, many groups like to have specific house rules that they reuse for an entire campaign. Um, I think that's great. You know, a big part of D&D is, is tinkering and making it your own. I recommend, though, that groups try to be as conservative as possible about how many house rules they use. And the reason why I give this suggestion is it's very easy to have for, pardon me, for house rules to start um, almost like self-replicating, mm-hmm. where you end up, if it gets too out of control, you can end up with a whole parallel rule set, and suddenly your players are trying to remember not only how like the game normally works, but also how your your customized version of the game works. So just as if, let's say, we were designing uh, a special set of rules for one of our settings, we would want to zero in on what are just a few new rules that will really bring this setting to life or this particular adventure location to life rather than uh, this whole constellation of new rules. Like zero in on what's going to be the most impact, what's going to make your game feel unique. Mm-hmm. Go for that with your house rules. Uh, go for a big swing, basically. Don't don't like sort of like you know. Oh, Tinker. I, I I changed the bonus in this you know one ability from you know my your shield spells because I think shield is too strong now does plus two instead of plus five. When you're doing that kind of micro tinkering, yeah. I mean, sure, if that's your bliss, go for it. But again, the cost is 
you're, you are increasing the number of things your players are going to have to track. Yeah. Uh, and so I'd say go for high-impact house rules that really make your, rule, your game feel special. Uh, and often this is a great thing to do when you're doing a, a, a special genre yeah. in your campaign. Uh, let's say you decided we're going to do mythic fantasy and our heroes are, you know, they're not just regular D&D characters. They're figures like Hercules or and whatnot. And so you might decide that all the characters start off with the equivalent of one of the um, uh, blessings and other uh, uh, sort of epic item, uh, epic abilities we suggest in the Dungeon Master's Guide. You mm. might decide I'm giving those at first level uh, or something like them. Yeah, uh, And that's a great example of that. That would be a strong statement in your campaign. Show right away, this is how our campaign is different without a lot of kind of micro tinkering uh, that a person is going to have to keep track of. I also, also another reason why I caution people about going uh, too hog wild with house rules is often I will see people creating house rules to address what they perceive to be gaps in the system, mm. but often a rule does exist in the system. Um, and often it's though something in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, I notice that people often do not uh, remember how many options there are in the Dungeon Master's Guide. I mean, that book is uh, kind of bursting at the seams with optional rules, different ways you can adjudicate things, different uh, tips for building things. So the game often already has what it is you're looking for. So I'd recommend just do a deeper dive uh, and there's a good chance you don't need to do any work because there's a good chance we already did it for you. Yeah, and I, I would suggest a lot of people, I mean, I, I know a lot of people already have the Dungeon Master's Guide and have read it and, and consumed it, but I think there's this idea that once you've read through it, it's magic items and a few other things that you need to like reference on a on a day to day basis while right. you're playing in the session. But mm-hmm. there, you you are correct in that there are so many variants and ways to think about how to add on to this system uh, with examples that are are throughout the entire book. That you're right. Many people will be like, "Oh, there's no thing for that." Well, actually, yes, it's on page seventy six, and you just skimmed over it because you were getting to the magic item section, right, of, right. of the Judge Master. So, right. yeah, it is one of the ones that where people are like, oh, I don't necessarily need that at the table mm-hmm. in normal play, but it's something to think about when you're prepping your session or, or, or wanting to create a campaign that feels very unique. And, and the variants and options in the Dungeon Master's Guide are great inspiration for creating house rules of your own because right. many of them, the, the optional rules in particular, are basically house rules uh, that we created to say, hey, here's one way you could customize your game. You know, right. like one example uh, that I talked about recently in a Kotaku article is the uh, option in the DMG for not rolling initiative for monsters. Just assume all monsters rolled a ten on their d20 and add their dex mod, and you can even you could even write that in as their initiative score uh, on their stat blocks, um, and. I love that too because it's like one less roll that you have to make, especially the beginning of of the session. And how many times have you done it? And you're like, oh, I forgot to roll for the monsters after you're like a round or two in, and you're like, oh, yeah, they're they're going ahead of you guys, and that changed everything that has already happened. Yeah, and a lot of it's happened to me. And and what's funny is a lot of those optional rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide are actually uh, uh, basically. remnants of versions of the rules we play tested. So we we came very close to printing an initiative score in the monster stat blocks in the monster manual. So that 
that initiative score tip in the DMG mm-hmm. actually arose from what almost made it into right. the official monster manual. Because after that long playtest feedback, there was a lot of material that was just cut that was ended up being changed, right? And then well, and right. and a lot of stuff we were testing internally that actually never was in the public playtest oh, okay. because we were doing uh, at the same time the public playtesting was going on. We were doing our own internal stress testing, and there were all sorts of things we tested uh, because we were we were basically iterating through versions of the rules faster than the public could. Because oh, right. uh, because we also had to then process all the feedback from the public, so we couldn't send them out. You know, every week. Well, here's yet another version <laughs> of the rules. Yeah, and as a playtester, it was very tough to even keep up with the the schedule that you had. Yeah, and so we were at the same time just going cycling through version after version after version and then also debating different ways to do things. Mm -hmm. And this initiative score uh, option uh, was one of those things that it didn't didn't make it into the final version, but it it came close. It's still there in the DMG. Yeah, and it's there. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, well, awesome. These, I feel like this is a great uh, uh, kind of overview of stuff that might have been overlooked uh, uh, in 5th edition and ways to make your table better. I don't know. Thanks for, for, for extolling upon all of these. <laughs> it makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. And as always, I'm now inspired to, to start DMing more than I already do. <laughs> <laughs> more DMing, more DMing. More. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Jeremy. Uh, how can people get in touch with you for more uh, rules questions? Uh, the best way is on Twitter where I am Jeremy E. Crawford. Awesome. And I'm at Greg Tito. Uh, You can ask me some of these questions, but most of the time I will just defer them to Jeremy. Uh, But I'm happy to answer any questions you might have about uh, uh, dungeon mastering or anything like that. So thank you very much, and uh, we'll be back next week with another segment. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Assuming they haven't left yet, so physically, physically here. Yeah, (laughs) she was checked out. That's why she was like, still on vacation. Mm. (sighs) This is your first day back from vacation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. How does it feel? Icky. Yeah. No good. (laughs) I should be taking a nap right now. Instead, you're drinking coffee. I should be drinking wine right now. Uh, Is that not wine? We, mm. we, wouldn't, we wouldn't know. Exactly. No, we wouldn't. That's right. Well, you would eventually. It's like <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let me tell you about what we're doing in 2019. What are you guys doing in Woo! 2019? Oh, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> See, I don't, oh. it would have worked if you were drinking real wine. That's it the real test. That's the thing. I yeah. would spill it all. <laughs> awesome. Get that is pretty cool. Yeah. I've seen it. Uh, are we are we recording already? Nice. Oh. See, that was some first oh, hey. grade A USDA certified banter. <laughs> that we'll now use for the podcast. Uh, thank you guys for bearing with us while we're listening to all of these announcements. Um, we have uh, uh, Adam Johns. Yeah. Yes. Adam Davis. And Adam Davis yeah. from the Wheelhouse Workshop. You gave us the quick uh, uh, two-sentence version of what you guys do. What's the longer paragraph version? Sure. So we actually run five weekly Dungeons & Dragons groups. Uh, we see about 30 kids a week. Um, and in our groups, we try to meet kids where they're at by playing games with them, and then use the game of Dungeons & Dragons as the sort of therapeutic game masters to design the game in such a way that the kids are building skills. So we'll, we'll like, as the game masters, plan ahead for what the specific areas of growth the kids are working on, and then find a way to have their characters experience that growth. That's kind of amazing. And then there's this great opportunity that ends up happening where through their character, they internalize a lot of that. They, they get an opportunity to overcome and be successful within all of those areas that they're, they're looking to grow. And then they 
get to do it all while still having fun. So it never feels like therapy. It never feels like they're, um, you know, sitting down and, and going through talk therapy. Instead, they're playing an awesome game, and they just also happen to be growing at the same time. So, so many questions. So many yeah. questions. Because I love, I love this stuff. We, we just, we love when people are using D&D for this kind of, kind of thing. Um, do the kids know what you're doing when you're, because everybody knows when you're, you know, trying to learn something with a game, the game no longer is fun. Do they know what's happening here? That It totally depends. Okay. So there's, a, a lot of our players definitely have had experiences in therapy where they rejected it. It, it's they a lot of our kids have been in therapy their whole lives, yeah. and so when we start being too therapisty, um, they will get upset. So we have to be very careful about not being too uh, overt about it. Mm-hmm. But then we're also working really hard to have a positive relationship with these young people in such a way that we can coach them a little bit. It's a lot, a lot more like Mr. Miyagi than it is a therapist. So right. we're okay. help, we they know we're there to be on their side and to help build them up and to, to help them build skills. And the amount of, of um, personal work that's done in that process sort of depends on the relationship that we have with them and what their area of growth is. In most cases, they know that they're coming in for a uh, like social skills group of some kind. And most of our kids are, are kids that actually really would love to build friendships and to, to get better at communicating with people. It's just that that's difficult for them. They're kind yeah. of lagging behind a little bit on where they've developed those social skills and now, they, now they're getting that opportunity to practice it in a place where they are with peers and interacting with people face to face and then also playing a game. So it's also a fun experience for them. You know what's, what's, go ahead. Sorry. Do it. Sorry. Do it. <laughs> what's the age range? Um, our youngest kids, I think, have been nine, okay. uh, all the way up to our oldest, I think, is 24. Okay. Um, obviously not in the same group together, but uh, we'll, we'll split up the groups split based them up on by, ages. by their ages? Okay. Yeah. And sort of developmental area. What kind of um, – so what are these kids diagnosed with? Is it, is it something like – is it a clinical thing or is it more of a we need to work on this kind of thing? It's more of a we need to work on this. Um, okay. Some of them do have like official diagnoses of um, Asperger's or high functioning autism, ADHD, um, anxiety, things like that. Okay. Um, but it's certainly not a requirement to like come to the groups. Uh, we get lots of kids that are just really just having trouble making friends or uh, making friends but having trouble keeping them, um, having trouble learning how to like get along with with other people on a, on a longer basis or um, be interested in somebody else's interest, that kind of thing. And D and D is really great for that because you have to work together to be successful and we design the games to make the players have to collaborate. So when we have players who come in and have struggled with flexibility or they um, they want their idea to be the only idea that's listened to, we give them a problem and they say, here's the suggestion, I'm going to do it. And then we have to sort of coach them on how they can listen to each other's ideas. We'll teach them how to brainstorm, teach them. Sometimes we'll vote on ideas depending on where they're at as far as um, helping them learn how to collaborate. Nice. And do you do do that under the guise of being dungeon masters? Yeah. We always take on the role of the dungeon master, mostly just because it's easier to, uh, like, facilitate purposeful puzzles and plot points within the game that really help build on specific skills. Um, And we'll often have to be very, very flexible in what we want to accomplish within that to, to really make sure that we're building on those flexibility and those um, uh, sort of creative problem-solving skills that we're looking for, for players to really build on. And how long are they typically in a group? Um, the client that we've had the longest has been with us for um, six years. 
Um, but I, you probably mean like how long is a game? Like, no, I meant like really like how long oh. do they stay with the program? So um, uh, we go in a, a quarter system, so we run about 10, 10 weeks in a row and then uh, take a little break for school stuff. We try to match up with the schools as much as possible so mm-hmm. when they're on vacation and stuff, they're not missing out on, on game time. Makes sense. Um, and then uh, most of our clients stick with us for a pretty long time. They get a chance to really work on skills. And the great thing about it is it's the skills that you bring in for yourself that you're really looking to work on. So when I make a character and my character has uh, terrible problems with his dad and he's he's cursing his dad at every moment, well, maybe that means I need to work on some, some work out some dad issues that, right. that are kind of yeah. coming Are they up making the their own characters? Just mostly, yes. Everybody plays a character however they're gonna play it. Right. So we, we have pre-made characters. We're huge advocates for pre-made characters for brand new players uh-huh. because making characters can be hard. Um, but you're going to project onto your character whatever you're, you've got to project yeah, anyway. I imagine that would be a really interesting tell to see like somebody's character and what they talk about with their backstory or what the type of character they decide to play. I mean, I encourage everybody watching or listening to think about the characters that they've played over their lifetime because I, I know when I did this sort of character backstory, um, I, I learned a lot about myself. That, like, I really wanted to play characters my whole life through video games and, and all that. Um, I like characters who are dexterous and characters who are really suave. Oh. And when I was growing up, I was overweight and kind of awkward and bullied at school. And so I tended to, when I wanted to go play D&D, mm-hmm. I played rogues. I played rogues who were seen, everybody saw that rogue as, like, really cool. And at school, I was not that way. At school, I had like hair down past my shoulders. It was greasy. I was overweight. And so I didn't see myself as cool. And But in the game, I could see myself as whoever I wanted to be. And I wanted to be cool. And I wanted to be well-liked. And in the game, I could be that. Yeah. And I, I think if people thought about what kinds of characters they like to play, they would be able to reflect on the kinds of things that they like and the kinds of things, the kind of person that they want to be. Shelly is magical all the time. But what would you say <laughs> about a person who always wants to play a magic user asking for a friend? Oh. <laughs> Not to get too deep psychological on you, but I'd say it's a, it's a cry for power in your life. Because magic is all about the idea that I have the power to, to shape the world in ways that, that are outside of my grasp. <laughs> Would you like a couch to lie on? <laughs> no. I feel so good I like right my now. Notepad at home. Wow. Yeah, I know, right? my, what uh, about somebody who always plays a fighter? Um, just the, wants to beat up things all the time. The need to be the center. Um, often the leader is the role that the fighter ends up taking on. So the fighter is actually maybe one of the most versatile classes for, for that. You can play a fighter as a backline bow support, or you can play a fighter um, up in the front lines with a sword and shield. Um, but in either case, when you play the fighter, usually it's because I need to be, I, I feel the need to be seen by my teammates. Because unlike the caster or the bow person who's in the back, um, you're, you're back behind everything. But the fighter's up in front and everybody can see them. So I feel like that person, like the magic user who's in the background, is probably very confident and doesn't feel like they need to be the center of attention all the time, right? It, Am I right? But you need to know the answer. Off. You need to know what the knowledge and know all the right things all the time. I don't need to. Or it could be that you're really uncomfortable with the center of attention, which is interesting. Ding, 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 How many times do we have to convince you to do these uh, uh, podcasts with a camera on? Be, I like to be the center of attention. I don't always like to be on camera. <laughs> totally well, different. Totally different things. Well, this isn't about me. See, I don't want to be the center of attention. <laughs> Turning it back to you and this awesome program, maybe we should start a little at the beginning. And how did this start? 
Um, Did you guys start this this program? We started Wheelhouse Workshop. Yeah. The Wheelhouse Workshop is the two of us. Okay. Um, we started Wheelhouse Workshop in 2013, but we were actually doing applied Dungeons and Dragons before that. We actually uh, used to work for an organization here in the Seattle area that um, offered Dungeons and Dragons groups for sort of um, kids with lagging social skills. Yeah. And so when we took that group over, it was like a great place for kids to come play D&D and sort of get the inherent benefits of Dungeons and Dragons. And then when we took it over, we were in grad school. We both were uh, at Antioch University of Seattle. Um, I was studying education, and Adam was studying couple and family therapy. And so we realized that we could use a lot of the principles from, uh, from those classes and target these kids' real-world areas of social growth. So we were also running an improv group at the time, mm-hmm. and Dungeons & Dragons is kind of sit-down improv, at least mm-hmm. the way that we play it. Um, and so we were already bringing in a lot of the drama therapy is my background. So I was using bringing my drama therapy stuff into... I pointed into, that out to Greg, because oh. Greg and I are theater majors. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. Yeah. I was a theater minor in undergrad, and then I decided that I wanted to change the world with theater. See? <laughs> See? And here, you are. And here it is. <laughs> yep. that's, that's One step at a time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we were leading this improv group, and it was really easy to translate the kind of stuff I was learning in, in drama therapy into the improv. I could like see a kid who needed to work on eye contact and play a theater game that works on eye contact or body awareness and those kinds of things. So it was kind of a one-to-one translation. Yeah. And then we were running that group together and then we would run the D&D group. And at the time I was like just kind of winging it and letting the kids DM for each other until I realized that D&D being sit-down improv is kind of an opportunity like, for the exact same things. Yeah, but so, in a different context, right? right. It's yeah. like, oh, we're all cooperative and doing stuff together, and you don't have to come up with theater games because it is a game. Right, exactly. exactly. So I could um, – but yet we could still do stuff like I could plant mini games into the game. Yeah. Like we did a thing where all of the players got teleported at the same time, and then when they came out the other side, they were all a multi-headed creature. Oh. And they had to talk one sentence at a, or one, one word at a time. To plead for the magician to... Which is basically like an improv game. Exactly. So we we do a lot of that kind of stuff, too. Making mini games out of improv games in our groups. I love that. That's super cool. Yeah. So to get back to the story of our our origin story, um, we started doing that in our Dungeons & Dragons game and really trying to use our mutual education in the groups. And so we would kind of design the games to meet their real-world areas of social need. And we kind of like... As we were doing it, we learned a lot of stuff kind of by accident. We were, we were experimenting with the model and experimenting by, by throwing kids for a loop, no, like knowing the kids pretty well. Um, can I tell stories? Yeah, yes. go for it. Go for oh, it. I, I don't. I don't know if you guys have more questions. If oh, <laughs> there'll be more We're questions. But no, you keep. Yeah, <laughs> okay. you. You tell. Um, so the way that um, one of the first stories early on is the story where I had this uh, group of adventurers who needed to get into a goblin stronghold. And I, I don't remember the specifics of why they needed in, but they needed in real bad. And the goblins, of course, did not want to let them in. And so one of the players in the group was a wizard uh, and uh, cast the spell Tongues on someone else so they could speak fluent goblin. And so the player who's speaking now fluent goblin is trying their best to uh, convince the goblin at the door to let them in for whatever reason they needed to get into the stronghold. And the character was doing a pretty good job of self-advocating and and – appealing to this goblin with all of the reasons why they were heroes and everything. But I know this character well from playing with him for a while and talking to parents and things. So I realized that this kid needs more of a challenge in order to feel successful. So I had the spell tongues run out. So now, instead of speaking goblin, he's speaking gibberish. But as a, as a theater person, I meet him speak gibberish. Um, so he's now speaking gibberish, and I'm actually convinced him that the goblins no longer understood what he was saying. So he stood up from the table and then mimed the rest of the story. 
So he like acted out in the room how they like attacked the minions of the Lich King and how they stabbed the Lich King with a onyx spearhead and how the body dissolved. It was um, epic. And he came back to the table like sweating because he had done such a great job of acting this out. And I get to play the goblins and I'm like, yes. Or I didn't spoke goblin. Oh, <laughs> and they welcomed them in and gave them free goblin room and board and everything. And the kid had a look of beaming pride on his face. And I knew that this is like um, what he needed was to feel successful. But the only way to feel successful is to be challenged. So I knew that I needed to challenge them where their areas of social growth are. Because this is a kid who needed to work on self-advocacy. But he was doing he was doing it. But to build the skills, I needed to give him the challenge. And it's my job as the game master to choose how much challenge I want to give them. Cool. Yeah, that's amazing. And I love that. Like, I totally understood that from a uh, both developmental point of view of like, oh, this is what you did to, to, to kind of coax out this performance from him, but also <laughs> the gaming of it. I'm like, oh, yeah, tongues. Yeah, no. Oh, yeah, tongues would run out. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. And like, yeah, what would you do in that situation? Right. Yeah. Uh, and then what were, the, uh, what, what were the, the, the other party members doing in that situation? Did they feel like they were, uh, uh, like it was like a, a spotlight focus on that character, but then they could, you know, one-up him or? In this case, it was a spotlight. Okay. And it was uh, a great modeling for the other players. So there's a lot in the game of Dungeons & Dragons where we can, like, give positive praise to a particular player for uh, for taking risks or for the specifics of the performance. Yeah. But then other players get to see that, see the rewards for it, so it's a kind of a proximity praise. Neat. That's super neat. Um, and what I love about this, too, is that it's kind of the opposite of something that my mom told me when I was going to play Dungeons & Dragons, where she was like, you know, uh, I heard from one of my friends at, at, at church that uh, her son got into Dungeons and Dragons and he couldn't find any friends and he was not able to do it. And I think the reason for this was the Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and even <laughs> back the then, the <laughs> I went back and I'm like, you know, I, probably the only friends that this kid had was in his Dungeons and Dragons circle. Mm -hmm. And that was like, you know, him developing and, and growing and, you know, having that like little bit of power that you can like, see in like Stranger Things and things like that. You know, and even back then, I kind of rejected my mom's interpretation of events. But now having, you know, uh, obviously 20 years of, of, of history and having uh, uh, organizations like yours being like, no, this is actually a great tool for for building confidence for showing how to build friends and how to do it. And it's the exact opposite of what my mom said, yeah. which is crazy to me. Yeah, I grew, I grew up in South Texas, and I remember playing Dungeons & Dragons in a tent at Boy Scout camp and the camp instructor coming over and shaking the tent, oh. saying, stop doing that devil stuff. Yeah. and But right now you're like, more devil stuff. Because <laughs> this is what makes kids able to, like, you <laughs> know, function. let me clarify. <laughs> I've never said more devil stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That was me. I interpret. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting words in your I mouth. I kind of imagine like More the, demon the stuff. camp, the Boy Scout leader shaking your tent and screaming, stop doing the devil stuff. It would could actually like work in your game. Like That's like a really good, like, <laughs> that's a good atmospheric. hook. Suddenly cool. the ground shakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the giants are there. I would be all in. Yeah. yeah. That's insane. So how do kids get into this program? Uh, mostly we get contacted by parents, um, and largely they're, uh, not always, but often they're parents who we've never heard of D&D, &D, or at least ha have never question. played it, have never have never really um, known what it's like to, to play D&D. &D. So we do a lot of explaining D&D &D at, at, a, at a base level to parents who've never never really seen that before. In most cases, they've heard of D&D. &D. But uh, they're totally open to using this 
Um, As they're most of the, you know, most of the parents who are coming to us are seeing their kids have a lot of struggle getting to build friendships and getting to um, getting to know peers and interacting with peers. And when they see about the opportunity to to come and do that in a fun place yeah. um, and know that their kid is going to want to come back week after week, that's huge for most of these kids. The just the chance to um, get out of the house and be in a in a social setting with peers and have a blast is gigantic and and it's just such a giant step for them in the right direction are you seeing friendships formed between the kids at the table together? that's kind of the gold standard yeah i know it's certainly like, a social skills yeah they really do like they actually like yeah they make friends oh they yeah do. i mean it sometimes we have to facilitate that. some of the exchanging of contact information and sometimes that is a parent sending me their contact information to send to another parent because right. kids don't, they don't have house phones. So yeah. it's a little bit more complicated now than it was, I yeah. think, right. when we were younger. Um, but we definitely see kids at the same table. And one of the, like, the amazing things is that they can go play Dungeons and Dragons together somewhere else. So yeah. we're kind of giving them the tools. It's harder to be a game master than it is to be a player. So there's like a whole extra layer of challenges when they try to go play by themselves. But we have had players go to Delves and do that kind of thing together as a way to continue the hobby. They know the language, so they're not yeah. having to, to really do a lot in order to build that friendship. Yeah, they're still together, but they don't have to. Right, and so it's about. it's great for them to do that sort of unfacilitated by us because then they can really practice the skills that they're working on and building in our groups. That's pretty fantastic. Do you, has there been a lot of them who have made that transition to being uh, dungeon masters? Because I feel like that's another step, you know, in, in yeah. not just development, but just, you know, uh, 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 organizing, you know, right. like you, you do need to be a leader in a way of not even in the game itself, but just to organize, you know, right. three or four people getting together. There's also a lot of attunement that you have to have as a good game master where you have to sort of take the temperature of your group a lot and know what's fun, what's not fun. So it requires a certain like social skill to be a, a good game master. And that's, yeah. um, we don't right now have any of our players game mastering for each other because the nature of our work is that we, as the game masters, that's what we right. offer is the therapist as the game master. Yeah. So, um, but we have had some kids interested in it, and we're throwing around the idea of like doing a game mastering workshop for them. Oh yeah. To sort of teach them the specifics of that. I don't think we've gotten any players who who never game mastered before, never played D and D before. We've definitely had some players that have become way more comfortable in game mastering and in uh, how to facilitate that when they when they've already had some of those experiences coming into the group in the first place. Yeah. And getting a chance to see them uh, talk about their games and realize the importance that that um, Dungeons and Dragons plays within their lives, so that they know that they need to have another game that they're running on a regular basis. That coming to our group is is one piece of that, but having having more opportunity to connect socially with people is still an important thing that they need to have. Yeah, I almost think of it like another challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, like hey, you've challenged it in this safe setting, and now it's like one more step to do it in a setting that's like one step removed from from the safety of, of the classroom or the workshop. Right, yeah. And a lot of the kids will exchange like IP addresses and, you know, get on some sort of internet play way my, of communicating to do some sniped Snapchatting yeah. together. Whatever the kids are doing on the internet these days, they do that. So, and that's, you know, there's ways that you can do that without having to be in person. It's still a, a scaffolded yeah. towards the ultimate goal of them being able to be comfortable with people they don't know. Yeah, yeah, good call. Um... I, someone was just saying we should have rubberized coasters for when we put stuff down. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Tons of good ideas coming from the, from the Twitch chat. Thank you, guys. You guys are the best. Um, but, yes, more rubberized coasters, Sean. 
I know you're only you're only just one person, but certainly you can make us some coasters. He's gonna throw one at me. Yeah, I know. It's not it's, made it's of good rubber. stuff. I like the idea that he has rubberized coasters. Right <laughs> it's like it's gonna they were ready to go the whole time. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I just been waiting for the perfect opportunity. It was you that said that comment. <laughs> He's got his other account going on over there. <laughs> um, so one one kind of uh, uh, patient, I, I guess I wouldn't call him patient. What would you call the, the person? Players, that's probably. Players, players or, or participants. Cl- clients yeah. sometimes. But. Clients, yeah, I guess. That, um, was uh, anxiety was, was one of the ones that you kind of noticed that, mm-hmm. that people are dealing with. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how the game kind of brings out uh, or it gives them the tools to deal with those things. Um, largely, a lot of that is is in the um, release of a, a character that's outside of you. So mm-hmm. one, one of the big things that we really um, focus on and give the opportunity for is uh, what's called often in the in the sort of drama therapy world as aesthetic distance, which is um, the distance between you and your character. So it's how much you connect to your character either on an emotional level or an intellectual level. So when you're describing your character and you say, um, my character... Uh, runs in and then he he shouts to everybody and he says, "Come on, everybody! There's a fire. You have to get out of here." Um, you're you're giving the opportunity to say, "I'm speaking as my character." But the more that right. you do that and the more you take on that that persona, gives you more opportunity to exist within that character. So a lot of working on anxiety is is actually finding the place where you can be um, displaced from it and you can understand just how much danger you're in or how much um, how much uh, you're experiencing from the from the experience that's going on. So somebody who's suffering from a high uh, a lot of anxiety or social anxiety might say my character runs in and tells everybody about the fire and that might be a good challenge for them to to be able to take those steps and say i'm displacing myself from this situation that might make me anxious so having to speak loudly to a, a large group of players or a large, a large group of people um, yeah. or we might step up that challenge a little bit and give them the opportunity to experience a small amount of anxiety but then overcome it mm-hmm. so then we might say what does your character say when they go in and, and get all these people to, to run away from this fire and then uh, the, they might say oh well he says um, uh, run, run away there's a fire it's stupid to stand here <laughs> okay um, and, that, and then we might even challenge them a little more if it seems like they need that challenge to really feel that success. So then we might say, um, how, how is he standing? Is he, you know what, can you speak in your character's voice? And the player might step, be able to step up to that and then say, like, uh, all of you, get out of there. You gotta, there's fire. Why are you standing? Um, and so then he, he gets further and further opportunity to be able to, to confront some of that anxiety, feel successful in overcoming that, and then step back from it and remember that he's a player at a table and there's no reason to have that anxiety right, right in front of him. That's, that's cool. And, and, and do you find that you have to identify it or is it better when you hide it? As as the gun, as the dungeon master, because um, I feel like that. Uh, I mean, I, I, me just jumping into that, I'd be like, "Hey, you're anxious. Why don't you?" You know, I, I, I feel like I would like I I go the the opposite route and go like right speaking in, speaking in front of large groups of people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like and I, as someone who has that fear, sometimes even though I I used to do it uh, with a microphone in front of people all the time, I was always completely anxious about it. But if anyone ever came to me, be like, "Wow, you look really nervous," I'd be like, "Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it." You know, so like. Uh, you know, honestly, these are all problems you have to deal with. It, it depends a lot on the players because some players will will take that and recognize that they're using this for growth, and they'll recognize how the the benefit of this particular in game experience is going to help them overcome those things in their real life. Yeah. And other players want want the fun, and they don't want to be they don't want to be too displaced from that from the experience of being at the table. Um, what's great about it is that it works either way. 
Um, it works no matter no matter what because those are great role playing skills. If if I was just playing a normal game at a table and and you were like, oh, I'm, I guess I my character runs in and, and rescues people at the fire, I'd be like, what is they what do they say? What's your character's voice? And I would I would encourage you to do that anyway because that would be great role playing at right. our table. And so those are all skills that we can promote and say, look, you're working on becoming a better role player, um, enjoying the game more because you're putting more of yourself into it. Mm. And because of that, you're also getting more out of it. You're getting that, that reflection to yourself. Do you guys do uh, like after action reports? Uh, say like after the session, they'd be like, you know, hey, you did this and this. I don't know if you even realized, but you overcome these challenges. So we do like an intro and an outro, a check-in and a check-out at the before and after. It's really good for putting con- a container on the experience. Yeah. When when players are a little too identified with their character, it's really good to sort of wind down at the end. And we do both before and after some reflection to, to get that translation. So at the end, we ask questions on things that are challenging, what was, what was personally challenging for you today, if there was anything, um, what's something that someone else did that was great so we want to get them to start thinking about the other players oh, at the table and, yeah. and giving compliments or even being aware of what other people are doing so they're not just waiting for their turn, so to speak. Um, so we do a lot of that kind of, of conditioning on, on both ends, but it really depends. And when we always take a turn in the checkout as well, and then that's an opportunity. If, if the other players haven't gotten that sort of spotlight on them, then it's on us to sort of say, hey, I really appreciated as the game master that you did this for the group and the group really benefited by that. So we can, cool. we can put it in the game while it's very Mr. Miyagi. It is very Mr. Miyagi, yeah. yeah. What's especially great about that is that if we have one player who really steps up to that challenge, uh, like I said, it's, it's good role-playing, right? So when we highlight it at the end of the day and we say, man, I really loved how, how that player um, stepped in and they used their character voice and they, they really um, uh, took on that, that how their character stands and stuff, that was awesome. Then it also gives the opportunity where all the other players go, man, I, I want to I do that too. I, I think I'm going to do that next time. I'm going to come up with a character voice for my oh, character yeah. So, yeah. so that I can do that too. And we get a lot of, of players who are very you know, socially isolated, so their characters tend to be loners. And so that end part is a great opportunity for the kids to um, highlight each other for helping out. So I really liked how you came over to pull me out of the fire spotlight on you for doing that. And then that player who did the selfless thing, who gave up their turn to not attack the creature, but to save a a teammate, that they get to feel the social rewards of being a team player. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, my, uh, when I, the first group I played in, in New York, uh, we played together for like three years and, uh, we had this custom, it was called favorite moments. And it was after every single game session, everybody went around the table and said what their favorite role-playing moment that wasn't from their own, you know, it's like someone else's thing, yeah. and uh, and then the game, you know, the dungeon master got to do the same thing, uh, you know, at the end, and he basically he was a former teacher, so I think he basically just like oh he highlighted everybody else's thing, like oh yeah that was good and that was good and what you said was also notice it, and then he tried to come up with one on his own too, you know, and I would and I didn't even think about the the. You know, I always just thought it was good role playing because it was like, oh, you're rewarding role playing by, by calling it out. But in this specific setting where you're going to the game in order to to grow in in social skills, it, it, that little bit of recognition is all you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually used to be a classroom teacher at Seattle Public Schools. Nice. It's a lot of good crossover yeah. there. Between, <laughs> oh, a lot of skills. Uh, I was fourth grade literacy teacher. Oh, really? Stories, man. It's all about stories. <laughs> I must have loved that. <laughs> so, are you finding when they're when they are actually building their own characters or adding more? of their own personal flavor to their characters, are they creating characters that are more like themselves or do they go on the opposite? It totally depends on like the player. Like how you went opposite. It's kind of a, kind of a, there's a typology. Okay. 
So um, we do a couple of things. We do make pre-mades just to get all the mechanics on the on the paper and mm -hmm. so they can play on the first day that they come in right off the bat. But we also ask them a few questions as they're making those those pre-made characters. So we 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 have a whole list of pre-mades and we want to find out like do you, when you picture your character um, fighting goblins, are you fighting up up close next to them or are oh, you okay. fighting from far away? And we get a chance for them to sort of make some choices about their character class. And then we That's ask some questions about their their yeah. backstory. So um, do you have any siblings? Uh, are you from a big city or a small town? And we also get to use those questions as a way to figure out how comfortable they are with um, with coming up with backstory and with um, open-ended questions. So asking something like, are you from a big city or a small town? You only have two choices. Those are your choices that you can do. But when I say something like, what is your big city well known for? Now you have all of the choices. And being able to determine that gives us a, a really good uh, meter for being able to understand like the level of social anxiety for a lot of players or, or the level of um, freedom and flexibility that they have coming in. Because we can then limit that down if they have trouble making that choice. We can say, um, if, they, if they're really struggling, we can say something like, well, would it be for mining or would it be for trade? And then yeah. now, can, now they can make one of those two choices. But either way they go, as they make more and more choices about their character, they, they put pieces of themselves into it. Uh, part of the philosophy of Wheelhouse Workshop is that every choice that you make about a character, even if it's in pursuant of something else. Uh, we had a player who uh, wanted to play Nicolas Cage. <laughs> that was his character. From he Face played, Off? It was actually <laughs> sort of every version of Nicolas Cage. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So he was kind of... ABC. He was Ghost Rider, <laughs> and then he would make Face Off jokes, and then he would get, like, attacked by bees. It was, <laughs> it, it was, it was a wide variety. this guy. Um, but ultimately, he picked Nicolas Cage over John Travolta. Um, and that choice is a significant choice that he makes that he makes one way or the other, and that tells something and, and gives him the opportunity to bring a part of himself into that experience. Um, there's a couple of people in chat. Uh, 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 Richard McSundy asked, "Is this program only for children, or are they for adults?" And you said it goes up to 24. Uh, as your oldest, but I mean, there is literally no limit on age for this kind of a program. Not at all. Really, actually, the reason that, that we're more aimed at, at children is that we find that that's a, an easier audience to get to come in and play. Um, adults are, are much more resistant. Are they? Uh, they are. Uh, much more resistant to like playing and being goofy in the, in the game and the table, and much more resistant to make good choices for themselves to come in and do something like once a week that's going to help them. Yeah, uh, adults are really terrible at that. Kids get their parents to do that, <laughs> but, <laughs> right. but but adults uh, have a hard time making those choices. But if for somebody older wanted to come, you would accommodate. If we had enough to get a group going, yeah, yeah, yeah then we would absolutely get get I that. I think you should do it. Shall we? <laughs> I was thinking about you. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I probably should go. Maybe we should. That is. Up. I mean, it's 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 fascinating, but I think there is something to that. I mean, I think a lot of the adults, you know, in, in our social circles, the people who are working on Dungeons and Dragons, and also streaming it and doing things yeah. like that, you know, a lot of us think about like the folks that we meet on a day to day basis who have forgotten how to play, have yes. forgotten how to pretend, and how healthy. That is for a human mind, not a child's mind. Yeah, it's for absolutely. a human mind, and so uh, yeah, I would encourage people to 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 do this at all points of their life. Not even you know for uh, 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 any of the developmental reasons you guys are talking about, but the pure social uh, aspect of absolutely. it. Like when you yeah. when when you're an adult and you have your own kids and you know, things are going on, it's very hard to make friends. And the only yeah, way I have found how to do it is by having like here's an activity that we're gonna do together. The activity is what the focal point is, but yeah. it's really like, you know, face-to-face -face contact. Right. And, and gaming is a perfect activity. It's nice because yeah. you can also schedule it. You yeah. can say, well, we're going to play a weekly game or a bi-weekly game, yeah. so then you can 
plan it in advance because one of the hardest things about being an adult is like you don't see your friends unless you plan on seeing them at school you would see right. your you know you'd see people and you say oh a person i'm passing in the hallway we should get together or whatever yeah but now as an adult it's, it's especially hard so i think it would be it's it's great for adults to play we used to have a, uh, a weekly game that we played in on top of the five, five <laughs> there's a lot of games there's a lot of dnd <laughs> Um, actually, um, one of the big things that Adam and I have always been a, a big proponent to, what we do is is sort of intentionally facilitated and it's designed to be uh, a therapeutic intervention. But the reality is, is that Dungeons and & Dragons and lots of games have really just inherent benefits. You're sitting down at a table and you're goofing around with your friends and you're talking in silly voices and um, you're having a good time socially with, with those people. And there's tons and tons of benefits just to that alone. Right. Even if you're not playing with the, the sort of um, intentional benefits of, of therapy that just being able to play in a weekly game means a lot. Yeah, exactly. You get those connections and, and you know, we hear from many people who have, uh, uh, you know, had a gaming group that they trans transitioned from childhood to, you know, mid-adulthood into middle age, you know, and those are the bonds that they've created uh, uh, around the table yeah. um, uh, that, you know, I, I think a lot of folks, when they move away or if they go away from, from, from their gaming groups to get really you know, depressed by not even really realizing the reason why. Yeah, it's kind of a familial relationship. Yeah. There's like infighting and there's like <laughs> systemic things going on that are both good and bad, but it's definitely got some mirrors to families. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so we need to get into the heart of uh, what our characters mean, I think, <laughs> no. now. Now. Drunky yeah. two-shoes, what do you think that means, not Shelley? Sure. <laughs> I can't mean, put my finger on Darryl? it. <laughs> Daryl's the support. He really just wants to love... Why did our parents name you Daryl and me Drunky Two Shoes? Named two of the kids Daryl. That's right. Yeah. They forgot that they had the other one. So it, clearly it was some neglect from our cat parents. Yeah. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> I think I was the favorite. Oh, no, man, that's true. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> really. You just came from a week away thought. from it. Right? Yeah. You just know, came from and a now week I'm like digging into my, after like spending 10 days with my parents too. Like, what did they mean by? <laughs> what is happening? Nice. Well, you guys are based here in Seattle, right? Well, you're going to have to franchise because yeah, obviously exactly. people listening are probably wishing they could bring their kids or bring themselves to you. Yeah, well, right right now our office is in South Seattle. We're actually moving our office to Kirkland. Oh, cool. Um, so we are expanding. To where, oh. to where more of the dysfunctional people are. <laughs> the east side. <laughs> so we're working on the stigma of, of, uh, of mental health. So I... Um, <laughs> uh, all of the people who need help, which is really everybody. This is true. Um, um, so we're, we're moving our, our main office to Kirkland. Um, and so we're still going to run groups in Kirkland and in the Greenwood neighborhood of Seattle and in South Seattle. It's my old neighborhood, Greenwood. Green, it's great. It's great. great so we, we run groups out of those three locations right now. But now that we're sort of moving our, our home base to Kirkland, we're also planning on um, – how many viewers do we have right now? Because I'm, I'm going to – uh, I'm going to tell you some stuff. 238, I think. Awesome. Okay. So for you, 238 people. Um, we're actually going to be... a podcast later. That's true. Yeah. Uh, what is this? Gonna, okay, whatever. I'm going to... Thousands I'm gonna, and I'm going to tell you a little bit of inside information. Ooh. Um, so, uh, Exclusives. Yeah. So Wheelhouse Workshop is an LLC that the two of us started. So yeah. it's really Adam and Adam is Wheelhouse Workshop. The social media, the blogs, all of it's just us. Um, so what we're doing is we're, we're opening up a new organization called Game to Grow. That's a cool name. And like it already. It fit on a sticker better than Wheelhouse Workshop. <laughs> um, so we're, we're starting this organization. There's not much out about it now, um, but we are officially launching next month. 
Next month. Next month. And yeah. we're actually going to be, so we're, we're doing a, a panel at PAX on uh, September 1st at 1230 in the cat room, if you happen to be at PAX. And it be, it's not one of the streaming rooms, sadly. It's not going to be one of the streaming rooms. Okay. I, I wish. You should talk to the organizers of PAX and let them know that we <laughs> well, should I, always be in the streaming room. I know room. a guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, we'll be in that room and we'll make an announcement for, for what's coming up. But we'll also, uh, if you're interested in what Game to Grow will be, to keep the mysterious, yeah. the mysterious <laughs> nature interested. of it. If you're interested in it, um, you should definitely uh, check out check out the website, and also um, we will release all of that information along with that panel on on that day. So even if you can't make it to the panel, you can totally still um, find out more about that information. Okay, sounds really interesting. Is it more? Is Wheelhouse Workshop going to still exist as a part of Game to Grow? Uh, it's going to be kind of helping out Game to Grow. Interesting. Um, but Game to Grow is going to have a, a much bigger purpose and purview. Uh, and, and a lot more opportunity to expand and, and like you guys were saying, oh. be able to get services out to, to other people. Sweet. So it's not like unheard of that you could franchise. So that, might, like that, that might be something that's yeah. on the horizon. We already do mm-hmm. consultations with other therapists and we do some training, but that's like going to be a, a thing that we're going to do a lot more of. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. That's a great idea I'm to get this idea out there. You can't, you just, you know, you can only... There's only so much of a social network here within Seattle where you can make that happen. Yeah. But if you, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a great idea. Yeah. I think you guys are smart. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Uh, uh, I think you figured something out. <laughs> I like doctors or something. <laughs> do you still practice? Like, I mean, are you is Wheelhouse your full-time gigs, or do you guys still have? Uh, it is not yet our full-time on? gigs. Um, Adam actually does uh, um, groups that I'm sure he'll tell you about in a second. And then I am a private practice therapist, and I work specifically with geeks and gamers in, in my family what? therapy practice. How yeah. do you – how? Uh, I it's mean, all like, you just meet people and you're like, not geeky enough? Yeah, that's basically <laughs> what I do. Yeah. How, do you get, how do you just filter it so it's the geeks and the gamers? Mostly people contact me. So they're, oh. they're, I see a lot of teenagers uh, who are looking for services who are having trouble with video game addiction or similar oh. problems to what we deal with in, in the wheelhouse groups like anxiety and high-functioning autism, stuff like that. And then I see them in individual therapy and family therapy. And then Adam actually does his other other job that he does, works with video games. Yeah, so I, I, in addition to working Wheelhouse Workshop, I work with the Atlantic Street Center in South Seattle with a core gaming program. And that's a, a program started by a good friend and colleague of mine named Wilder Nuttingheath, and he started using video games with dialectical behavioral therapy. So I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons and playing video games, both with kids to help them become more confident, creative, and socially capable. Wow. <laughs> It's a, it's a dream. Games are good for you. <laughs> Games yeah. are good for you. This is amazing. Uh, thank you guys so much for for coming by and uh, being on this podcast. I feel like we only like scratched the surface. There's so much more I want to ask about. Yeah, you'll have so to have us back on. You're gonna have we to will. come back on, well, especially after. after you, and yeah, after you guys announce Game to Grow. Oh yeah, that sounds great. Oh, there's one thing that I'll I'll pitch. We're also doing a live event at Antioch University. Oh yeah, on September 7th. It's a uh, um, you can find more about it on our social media. We've been kind of spamming about it. But if you um, come to that, we're going to sort of tell probably some of the same stories we just told. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but but better and longer with, with more with commentary. More, with more educational stuff in there. So you can maybe like learn some more about the theory behind what we do. Sweet. Awesome. So that's it. September 7th. I think it's at 6 p.m. But the information's on our website. Okay. You mentioned the website. but Wheelhouseworkshop.com and at WheelhouseWS on Twitter and WheelhouseWorkshop on Facebook. What about you guys? Do you have personal Twitters, or is that pretty much what you do? I, I only Mostly. use my personal Twitter to complain to corporate Twitters. Oh, all right. <laughs> it's like pretty much all I do with it. <laughs> That's you. It actually, like, it, like, it works. It totally does. I have like Group Health following me and Virgin America following me. Yeah, it's like, the airlines hate when you tweet bad things yeah. about them. I know. <laughs> 
Sometimes they don't do awesome. it when there's not even anything wrong. I'm just yeah. like, I just want a blanket. You know, I don't know. I you. <laughs> you set yourself up for success. Later. <laughs> exactly. Be like, they know me. They know me now. More awesome. Biscoff cookies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just and life. Just you just arrive. want more, right? I do. Uh, all right. Well, thank you guys uh, again so much for joining us. Yeah, and you're doing uh, great work. You're doing amazing work, right? And, and keep it going. And and, and I, now I have real ammunition to go to my mom and be like, see? This, yeah, it was seriously. important that I was playing Family as much as I was counseling. playing. That's right. All of my characters have mommy problems. <laughs> I wonder why. Uh, all right. So uh, I, I will book a session with both of you and uh, and my mom, and we'll figure it all out from there. That we need to live stream. We shall. Yeah, she'll be really excited about she'll that. She'll love that. She would. What is this thing? Can we get you and, and your mom as well yes. to, to do it, right? Yes. Yeah. Because she only wants to play fighters. She wants to be the center of attention. She's. That's just weird because it's not her. It's the opposite of her. Maybe she won't even she's let been her, pushing that down this whole time. Maybe. Yeah. She's not able she to needs, identify. She needs more D&D. Yeah. Don't we all? Yes. Yeah. Don't, we <laughs> Don't we all? Don't we all? All right. Good. That's a, that's a, that's a good <laughs> ending, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, all, we all need more D&D in our lives. That... <laughs> I love those guys and what they're doing. The oh. Wheelhouse Workshop sounds like uh, like what I should have gone to when I was a kid. Oh, I'm also say sounds like like the work you should have gotten into as an adult. No. Oh, that too. Oh, your mom the... never would have taken you there. Ever. No, that's probably true. That's probably true. But no. I, it is amazing, and I think a lot of you know uh, uh, the the practicing of social skills uh, is something that I don't think a lot of people even really think about when. Dungeons and Dragons no. comes about, but it's like but it exactly what it is. Inherent. We've right. heard it from a lot of people, and I'm just glad to see people doing it. And that then, is like right up my alley. Right. I love it. And they've like fine tuned it like to like a thing, like, oh, this is the thing, and this is and like, I just love that. As a game master, you're kind of yep. doing those, and they kind of alluded to it a little bit, like that there you have to do that in order to be a good game master to begin with, mm-hmm. in order to bring people out and tell them about good role playing. But yep. to have that just a little bit extra of like, I know this person is struggling with X, and if I can give them yes. this thing, then X will be easier. And they're making friends. Yeah. I love that. I love friends. So I'm curious about their little announcement coming up next month. I know. So hopefully, uh, whatever it is, it's hugely successful, and more people around the world can take advantage of this really good program. There will be games to growing happening. Game to grow. Game, game, game to grow. Game to grow. Not games to grow? No. Okay. Uh, I think it's... Did you hear a voice? I didn't hear any voice. <laughs> it's someone coming from uh, another part of the world <laughs> before it gets into this. Um, Shelly, what are some uh, last-minute things you want to get out there before we close out this here podcast episode? I am just, you know, excited to come back from vacation because that just means we're 10 days closer to betrayal at Baldur's Gate. You shall be betrayed. In Baldur's Gate. In Baldur's Gate on yeah. October 6th. So I came back to my desk and there was like four fewer copies because somebody who shall remain nameless, Nathan B. Stewart, took my copies. No. Yeah. He took them? And sent them out. To people that are going to like them? Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, that's not a bad But idea. still. I saw you holding some counters in your hand today, which I never didn't comment on, but they were some pretty cool looking uh, Axis and Allies counters. You saw that? I saw that. <laughs> I did. Is that from Anniversary Edition? I'm not saying. Because <gasps> it looks pretty cool. Do you like it? I do. Uh, my Russians are not doing as well. Uh, oh. But it's okay because the allies in general are good and will we'll eventually carry your ass. Kill all the Axis powers. Yeah. Um, that's good. But that's also coming out on October 6th. October 6th. The, the Axis and Allies Anniversary Edition. Right. Which is different than a lot of the other editions that you have out there. 
just throwing. I, I was yeah. a little bit taken aback. There's the Chinese have their own like kind of mini faction. Mm-hmm. Italy is its own faction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's the board is enormous. It's ginormous. Ginormous. Yeah. Paper money. It's like a triptych. Yeah. 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 Exactly. It's pretty cool looking. It's good stuff. Nice. Um, we mentioned uh, Tomb of Annihilation is coming out on the 19th. Uh, Xanathar's Guide to Everything is coming out on November 21st. It'll be in game stores, though, with an alternate cover designed by Hydro 74 on November Very 10th. Cool. And it is uh, going to be fantabulous, and I really like that cover. Um, and um, what else? Did, uh, did you guys know there's also going to be a Tomb of Annihilation Dungeon Master screen that Gale Force 9 is doing? All of the marketing Ooh, art. I've seen the pictures of it. I love their stuff. It looks really good. I'm and a big the, fan. And the inside version is all uh, redone, uh, especially for Tomb of Annihilation. And then not to oh. mention that, there's also the Dungeon Master screen reincarnated that's coming out in September. I know a guy who was involved in that. I know. His name is Schmiss Blinzy. <laughs> yeah. We should get him on the podcast. We should get him someday. on the podcast and pretend that he's not sitting right next to us. Uh, but until then, we will uh, have to say goodbye to this podcast right here. Goodbye to this podcast. Where can people find you? Find me on Twitter at Shelly Moo. What about the uh, uh, game company you work for? Avalon Hill 2, the number 2. That's right. You can ask me any questions on Twitter at Greg Tito. That's just at Greg Tito. And of course, if you're looking for more stuff about Dungeons and Dragons, uh, there is a little website that you can go to called DungeonsandDragons.com. Heard of it? Or DragonMag.com is where Do you that. can find Dragon Plus. Uh, issue 14 just came out uh, last month, and it's fantabulous. And the next issue is going to be even better. And that's right. Bart's working overtime on that one right about now. Yeah, it is. It is exactly. Um, and of course, you can follow the official Twitter for. Uh, Dungeons Dragons at wizards underscore dnd. Dnd. That's it. All right. I think we're out of here for this yeah, week. Yeah, let's go. That's out. That's it. We got to go talk to Schmiss Blinzy. Okay, Schmash. <laughs> Fuck.